Good morning. My name is Danny Potter. Um, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 25. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your children in Christ, and yet we groan. We suffer. We wait for that which is ours through faith, but is not yet fully realized. We look ahead to glory, to the redemption of our bodies and our adoption as sons and daughters. So increase our faith, Lord, that we might wait in hope and take comfort in knowing that our present sufferings, no matter how difficult and dark they may be, are not worth comparing to what's coming. May your spirit guide Pastor Matthew into all truth, and may he give us comfort through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, that section that Danny just read from in 18 to following. And if you're using, a, if you have, don't have a Bible with you and you're using a pew Bible, or I keep saying that, uh, a Bible beneath a chair in front of you, you can find today's text on page 1003. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take one of those Bibles with you today. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Huh. It's part of Paul's letter to the people of Rome. It's part of chapter 8, where since verse 1, he's been providing evidence for why we can rest secure that in Messiah Jesus, we are those under no condemnation. That's what this little mini-series in Romans 8 has been about, no condemnation. We have the Spirit of God. We are God's children. We are co-heirs with Messiah, and we will be glorified with Messiah, meaning we will have the glory that had been lost restored to us, and we will suffer with Him, and we will have sufferings plural, in this present time. Which might, and I think we could say should, cause us to ask a few questions. Not, not the least of which is, what about no condemnation? What about freedom from judgment? 
being God's children, being adopted, having the spirit of the living God present within us, being heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah. If all of those things are true of me in God, this doesn't seem to follow and make sense. The dots don't seem to connect. Why suffering? God, if all of that is true of me, why do I have to suffer? These are the kinds of questions that we might ask, and they're also the kinds of questions that are often turned into accusations leveled against believing followers of Jesus in the midst of our sufferings. What is the use of following and believing in your God? (laughs) See, he doesn't save you. So what's the point? You're still suffering. What's the point of a God like that anyway? I think we need to be ready to respond when we hear those kinds of accusations from those outside of the faith and at times from those inside of the church. And often, brothers and sisters, don't we have to admit, at times often from ourselves. And I think a beginning point for that kind of understanding for how we can respond is to understand what's at play and, and what folks are saying or thinking when they say such things like that, that, that they don't understand. You see, I think there's a couple of things that, that are going on. One, they don't understand. When we think that way and we speak that way and make those kinds of accusations, we, we don't understand the story that we and all of creation are in, the bigger story. And two... I think what's at play is that humanity, particularly those in America, are unable to live with any sense of patience, endurance, or expectation, largely because of the fact that we don't understand the story that we are living in. And what Paul has written here in Romans 8, 18 to 39 is a corrective, I think, to those two problems as well as a host of others. Today we're just going to look at verses 18 to 25. And what we will see is that Paul reminds us that those who have been adopted into God's family and have received the Holy Spirit are assumed to live new eschatologically oriented lives which are characterized by an eager, patient hope bent toward that which cannot yet be seen, a belief that we are not and will not live our best life now, contrary to bestsellers, but we will, in fact, live our best life later. I've often told you when we're studying the Bible together and taught in course seminars on Wednesday nights that when you're studying the Bible context is king, right? We don't take little pieces of text and just study those alone. We, we keep them in their context. We have to understand what went before that text and what follows after that text. And the way that we live our lives is not altogether different. We have a context for our lives. And so we can't just take the little bit of life that we're living right now in this moment in May of 2023 In order to understand that bit of life that I'm living now, I have to know what went before my life and what is coming after. Because we are living in a story written by the Creator God being spoken into being each and every day. And thankfully, (laughs) thankfully this, this book gives us the context of our lives. It gives us the story of our lives, the whole story. It tells us in this book, you can sum up the entirety of the story. I've said this before on a Sunday morning with three words. Can anybody remember what they are? Say them out loud. Someone was saying them. 
All right, creation, fall, rescue or redemption, and then restoration or new creation. Now, something really, really important to remember about this big story, these four words that represent the big stories, you can actually say them in one word. We hear one word, we hear it a lot in the church, and that's the word gospel. Or what I often say, because what that word really means is just good news. And too often in the church, what we do is we truncate down the story of the good news, because this this is the good news story, the whole story. And what we do is we say, oh no, this, this is the gospel, the cross of Jesus. When he came into this world, he lived, he died, he rose again and went back to the throne of his father. That's the good news. No, this is the good news, right? Because you can't understand this part of the overall story, with, uh, this part of the story without understanding the overall story. So don't truncate it down. As glorious as the cross is, that isn't merely the good news. It's the whole story, which makes sense, right? I mean, how many people, when you go out, you know, maybe you just bought your favorite John Grisham novel. You don't open that book to page 258 and start reading, do you? And so often that's what we do. We, we want to take people who don't know Jesus right to this part of the story and then we, we like kind of marvel that they don't really understand why they need Jesus. Well, they haven't understood creation and fall yet. So you haven't created a sense of, oh, that's why I need Jesus. Because I've fallen and I'm a sinner and I'm lost. So we have to have and hold out to ourselves and the world the whole story. Because in that way, we'll protect against so many misunderstandings, I think, that happen when we forget the big story that we are living in. Most importantly, that we are to be living a new eschatologically oriented life. Do you know what that word means, eschatological? That's kind of a $3 theological word, right? Like, it just means the last things. That's, that's simply what it means. But a lot of people, they do the same thing with eschatology. They think, well, eschatology is just the book of Revelation at the very end of the story. And that's not true. This really is, eschatology is happening over the whole story. Do you know that Jesus was foretold in Genesis 3? Eschatology started in Genesis 3. And the last days, I believe these right here are the last days, Right? From the time when Jesus came until the time when he comes back, this 2,000 peri year period that we're living in, what, what Paul calls here in our text, the present time, right? This present time, these are the last, we don't know how long they're gonna last. They could last another 4,000 years and still be the last days, but that's the time that we are living in. And when you lose track of that, all kinds of misunderstandings can happen, especially in the face of suffering. Because if you don't have this whole story in your mind and in your heart and deep in your soul, especially in the face of suffering, then despair can set in and grumbling and complaining and worst case scenario, a complete loss of hope. But Paul means to clear that up for us in this text. He is going to reorient our thinking back up to this bigger story that we see here. He reminds us to live this new eschatologically oriented life that we're meant to live. A life filled with hope and hopefulness in the midst of our sufferings and groanings. So let's go back to eight, chapter 8, verse 18 to 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the Creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So Paul is pointing us to this bigger story of creation, fall, rescue, and new creation. And now he's going to put some meat on those bones. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Which means, right, that at one point the creation wasn't under futility. 
In other words, the creation was able to fulfill all it was designed to be, to function in the purposes it was meant for, and it was saturated with glory and goodness. Look at Genesis chapter 1. This is the very beginning of the story, right? Creation. A good God creates a breathtakingly beautiful world of the day and night, waters and sky, earth and ocean, plants and trees, sun and moon, seasons and days and years, fish and sea life, birds and swarming things. Don't you love that, kids? Swarming things. I love that. Beasts and bugs. Why mosquitoes? Have you just like, I just want to ask God, what was their point? Everything that moves and everything that doesn't, all of it, good, all of it shot through and saturated by and filled with glory. There was glory here. We lived in glory in creation, full and complete creation, fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. Glory, the the incandescent splendor and majestic grandeur of God. But it was subjected to futility. It became frustrated from fulfilling its purpose and function, operating the way that God intended in order to bring him maximum glory and joy and to do that for the pinnacle of his creative work, humanity, right? This, this whole creation and all of this glory had been created as, as the theater of the glory of God. And in that theater, he set his main character, man, and woman to enjoy all of that. But then creation moved from glory to groaning under the burden that it was subjected to. And why was it subjected to futility? Why is it out of joint? Why doesn't it function as it should? Is in bondage to disintegration and decay. It's getting worse instead of getting better. Well, the, Paul tells us it wasn't willingly Right? In other words, this is not of its own accord. So what happened? Humanity happened. Created humanity turned from the creator when, the te- when tempted by one of his creations to worship the creation. Adam and Eve listened to a fallen angel and fell. They fell. And thus subjected all of humanity and creation with them to sin, futility, groaning, and suffering. Glory was lost. Glory was lost at the fall. Genesis chapter 3. And God said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat plants of the field. Now, can you just hear creation at this point in the story of Genesis 3? Like, what did I do? Like, I was just laying here being ground, and the next thing you know, like, he did it. It's not my fault. Why am I in trouble? Why am I getting cursed? God, why are you subjecting me to this? 8 verse 20. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. In the hope. Circle that word. What is hope? Well, hope is a future expectation of something good yet to come, right? And in this passage, it is to be set free. Isn't this amazing that Paul recalls the very beginning of the story at creation and says, even there, even at that moment of the curse and futility and suffering and groaning, hope was present, but not because man would rise up and save creation. Friends, this is a great error and hubris of man. I remember when President Obama won the Democratic nomination. I I don't know if you remember this. I, I remember seeing online, it just happened over and over again. Do you remember what he said in that acceptance of the nomination to become the 
to run for the presidency. We will look back at this moment and history and we all of humanity will remember that it was at this moment when I'm, when he's about to become, you know, run for president, when the oceans began to rise and the earth began to heal. Wow. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> you're going to be president. The whole world's just going to be a-okay. I don't think so. Does it feel better to you? And this is the great error of the religion of climate change that says it is humanity that is the problem with this planet and yet remarkably can say at the same time that it's humanity that's going to save the planet. Well, Kind of. We, we as Christians should say, yeah, kind of that's true, but not in the way that you think. You see, the hope that Paul saw at the moment when it all went bad for creation was that the offspring of the woman, right? A man, a human, but a very special man, a very unique man, the God-man would one day rise up and strike the serpent and sin a death blow. That's what, that's what we read in the very beginning of the story in Genesis 3.15, right? It's what scholars call a proto-euangelion, which just means the first good news. So there it is, right in the beginning of the story, the good news that begins to happen and be told. In other words, we hear right at the fall that rescue is coming. Rescue is coming. Freedom from sin is coming. And glory is going to return to the sons of Adam. And this initial rescue will one day result in a full and glorious freedom for God's children, says Paul, because this hope is in something in the future, a creation set free from bondage to decay, God's children set free from bondage to sin, all of creation, human and non-human, once again flourishing in the glory of God, the incandescent splendor of his beauty and majesty, all of it happening in a new creation with God. Glory is coming back, full glory full restoration at the new creation. That's what Paul is on about. So here it is, nestled in just a few verses of our text this morning, the entire big story that you are living in, that I am living in as humans and Christians. But you should ask now, okay, that was really neat. Thanks for your neat little whiteboard exercise there, Pastor Matthew, but what does that mean for me? living right now, in the present. Is it applicable to my life? Well, let's go back to Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Okay, so I want you to notice something here. Paul has been very careful. When I, when I first read, started reading this text this week, I thought this is a really bold statement to make, Paul, because he's saying, my sufferings, the sufferings of, right, this is, this is what he's on about, the sufferings of this present time that are happening right here, these sufferings are inconsequential. They're insignificant. They're incomparable. And that's a bold thing to say, and it can feel like a slap in the face, especially if you are in the midst of suffering right now. But notice that Paul is being very careful here. He is not throwing words around. He says, for I consider. In other words, that word is like an accounting term. It means to reckon out. It means to do calculations. Like, like he has thought this through. He's looked at the big picture. He's done the math and the calculations. And he's saying, listen, I've thought this through in light of the big picture. And I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing. They're inconsequential and insignificant with the glory of the coming time, the future time, the new creation and full return to glory. And he says, I've come to that calculation because the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be 
revealed. In other words, and I think, you guys, this is so helpful. Suffering obscures the fact that we are God's children. Suffering obscures the fact that we are God's children. This is why people may mock us asking, how can you believe in God? Because see, they don't understand that we are living between two ages. The age that has broken in and the age to come. I've not yet been fully revealed as a child of God. I am living in the now of partial rescue and looking forward to the not yet of full restoration and new creation. The fullness of who I am as God's child right now is hidden. Both from the world and at times from myself. And the creation, chapter 8 verse 19 the creation, I, I love the language that Paul uses here, like it's eagerly anticipating and waiting. What the word literally means is, is to stand on tiptoes. <laughs> okay, moms, happy Mother's Day. How you doing out there? How we all doing, moms? Okay, you remember these times in, in your life, right, when, when the kids are younger and you start making, you know, let's say chocolate chip cookies, and you got all the ingredients out on the counter and stuff, right? And, and what do the kids do when, when they know what's coming? And, and, the, and they're little, right? They can't see above the counter. What do they do? They're like trying to get up and like crane and see and like get on the edge so I can just, because why? Because they are eagerly anticipating the glory of chocolate chip cookies, right? They just want to get a little taste, a little peace. And sometimes even when you're still 54, right? And you want a little bit of the glory of chocolate chip. You know, I, I will reach it to try and get a little bit of the glory of chocolate chip cookie dough. I still get my hand slapped. And I often have to say, you know, I paid for the ingredients. I'm 54. I want the cookie dough. Yeah, but there's egg in there. I don't care. I don't care if it's not cooked. I want me some glorious cookie dough. Right, and that's what the whole, the whole creation, Paul says. It's like that little kid or like that 54-year-old man who just can't wait, just can't wait, eagerly anticipating what? Why does creation long for and eagerly anticipate the full revelation of God's children? Because the creation knows when that happens, when we are glorified fully and released into the freedom that God has always intended since he began his rescue mission all the way back here in Genesis 3, then the creation will also be released from its bondage to decay and return to its former glory. Even better. See, I think it's going to be even better. It's not just that it's going back here. It will be a new creation we are told in the scriptures. It's going to be even more glorious. It's going to be released from its bondage to decay, which sometimes, listen, you guys, I think we, we find it hard to believe that it could be longing that way because we live in this valley that is so unbelievably beautiful that it's hard for our minds to think that it could possibly get any better, but it can. It is under, isn't it just blow your mind to think that what we see is under a veil that's making it not nearly as glorious as it one day will be. Oh my goodness. And that we're gonna, like, and our eyes are not yet glorified eyeballs. <laughs> so that those two things are gonna come, like we're gonna have glorified eyes and there's gonna be this glorified, oh, it's gonna be amazing. And do you know how badly the creation longs for this, how resolutely the creation is not present oriented. It's not merely wrapped up in the present time. Do you know how, how badly it longs to be released? When Susan and I were preparing for our first child, uh, his name is Colton, uh, we went to this birthing class. Anybody been to the birthing class? Dealy bopper. So we, we go to this birthing class and, you know, and, and we, we make it through. Uh, we make it through that first delivery. And I know all the women right now are like, yeah, we, buddy. That's, that's nice. That's real rich that you all made it through. Didn't Susan just make it through? The, okay, fair enough. I get it. My wife warned me about this illustration. 
So we get invited back by the nurse who had done this birthing class to kind of be guests and like address this class. And memories are imperfect. Here's, here's my best recollection of it. Is that uh, so? So we we get invited back, which which I think is probably not altogether. Probably has something to do with how excellently I coach Susan through the delivery. If I, I, I think that's probably really why we got invited back. But um, she might have had something to do with it. So we get invited back. We show up in this room, and the nurse is go- kind of going through the class, and and then she at one point she has us come up onto this kind of little stage, and we're sitting there together as a couple, and and then she's I can't remember exactly what happened after that, but then she kind of opens it up for questions and. And so there's this room full of like young moms and husbands, right? Like just in various states of pregnancy and, and, and looking forward to this glorious moment. And, and, and I think it was this, this little woman in the back, just this really petite, in my recollection, this really petite gal, you know, who, who kind of just very sheepishly kind of raises her hand and, and quietly, and, and she says, uh, so... Um, does it hurt as bad as everybody says? Now, you have to understand something about my wife. If you know my wife, you, you know this about her. She's generally a very demure, a, a very quiet, soft-spoken woman. She's, she's not, you know, like her husband that's all blah, your hands waving and everything. She's, she's not like that. But in this moment, I think she said something like, Oh my gosh, it hurt! And then launched into this graphic display of what, and in, in, in like this graphic description of what had happened in the delivery room, just like vividly painting a picture for how bad it hurt. And the, the eyes, on, you should have seen the eyes on this girl in the back, just like getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the room was getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And I think at one point I just put my hand on her leg, like, oh my word, you gotta like dial this back. <laughs> And the nurse got up and said something like, okay then. (laughs) Now, why would my wife do all of that that she had described the first time and then after experiencing labor pain like that, why would she choose to do that again? And again, and again. Why would she go through that kind of suffering? Labor pains. New life, that's why. New creation, because at the end of the groaning is glory. I'll never forget the end of that first delivery and Craig Svensson lifting up my son and saying, it's a boy. And then to see again, it's a girl, Isabella. And then it's a boy, Ezra. And it's a boy, Nehemiah. They would not be here without those labor pains. And this is what creation is doing, family. It is groaning under futility and suffering because it is waiting eagerly and with great anticipation for new birth to happen. You see, that's what groaning is. Groaning doesn't reside in the suffering. Groaning looks beyond the suffering to glory. The creation longs for a return of the sons of Adam and Eve who had lost their glory, who had abdicated their rule, who had brought about the curse because they turned away from their calling. The creation groans for the obscurity of suffering to be lifted so that the sons and daughters of man, so that we can be revealed in all of our glory and rule once again over a new heavens and new earth. That's what it's longing for. For a creation to hear once again, very good. Very good. But it is not merely non-human creation that is groaning and eagerly anticipating on tippy toes such glories. Verse 23, not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption 
of our bodies. This is what we've learned from Paul already in Romans. You see, when the, when the Spirit of God was poured into our hearts so that we might know the love of God, when the Spirit brought us from death to life, when the Spirit freed us from bondage and slavery to sin, when the Spirit made us children of God, when the Spirit made possible our adoption into His family so that we might see the glory of Jesus and declare faith in and love for Him so that we might be co-heirs with Him and be declared right before our Father, all of that began a whole series of events like salvation and adoption and sanctification and on and on, but it began a series of events. The Spirit was the first fruits of these things. Jesus bringing the kingdom ushered in the new age of the kingdom, but didn't bring it to completion in the creation or in us. Paul makes clear, we are still waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit, Paul says elsewhere, is a down payment in us. We live between these two ages of the kingdom coming and the kingdom consummated. Not at the end. Glory is only partially ours. True life is present but hidden. We live in incompletion. And that's hard, isn't it? Because we've been given this spirit and all of this glory that has been placed inside of us. And so what Paul is saying is, is we have this little taste of what it's going to be like. It's like when I only get that teeny little bit of chocolate chip cookie dough. And I want so much more. I just want to go in that drawer and grab out the serving spoon, right? And just like scoop up a whole bunch of chocolate chip cookie dough. And, it, and we have this taste of what it's gonna be like, which can be frustrating, right? It's frustrating. It can be painful. And so what do we do? We groan. We groan. One author says it this way. We groan about all sorts of things. Political upheaval, social unrest, economic hardship, workday stress, emotional problems, relational breakdown, physical ailments, the Christian life, the Christian life, not just human life, even Christians, the Christian life is filled with groaning. I groan when I read the news headlines. I groan when I hear about the persecution of the church around the world. I groan when I hear of a relative who has been diagnosed with a serious illness. Life can often feel like one soul-crushing and heart-wrenching blow after another that leads us into incessant groaning. We groan. Or, like the famous theologian Wesley from that great theological treatise, The Princess Bride, Life is pain, highness. And anybody who's telling you differently is just trying to sell you something. And in response to that pain, brothers and sisters, listen, in response to that pain, grumbling is sinful, but groaning is spiritual. And that's a fine line, isn't it? Can't we just admit It's a fine line between grumbling and groaning. And Paul here doesn't criticize groaning, but merely states it as the common experience of people living between rescue and new creation. We groan this way because we understand better than anybody the bigger story that we are living in, and we understand the part of the story that we are living in. At least that's what Paul is trying to remind us. See, that's the difference between grumbling and groaning. Grumbling stews in its present reality. Groaning looks beyond groans over that reality, but sees something different is coming. Do you see the difference? You tracking with that? That's what a future orientation is. That's how we're meant to live is in an eschatologically future-oriented way. We live in a world cursed with sin, a world groaning. 
We live in the incompleteness of the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we groan and groan and groan in the suffering, in the knowledge that new life is coming. New creation will be birthed one day into this world and our groans will be no more. We live in a time when our suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us, but when we may respond with groaning until the glory is revealed to us. We live in an age when the momentary lightness, this is, this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, when the momentary lightness of our afflictions is producing for us, not just in the midst of, but is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen and in the future. Paul says that we groan in this tent, longing to put on a new tent. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be fully clothed. Not that our life would be swallowed up by death, but that our life would be swallowed up by new life. Eternal life. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose was God himself, who gave us the spirit as a down payment. That's what it looks like to live in a broken world. In our incompletely, do do you see what Paul is saying? We have incompletely saved bodies. (laughs) The, The work's not done. So that we're eagerly anticipating and excitedly waiting. Romans 8, 24 Now in this hope, and Paul brings it all to a conclusion here. Now in this hope, to which you should say, what hope? Well, the hope that we as sons and daughters will one day be fully revealed, that we will then see creation renewed and made new, that adoption and redemption and all the rest will be fully and finally completed, that we will once again have glory, live in glory, delight in glory, rule in glory. It is in this hope that we were saved But hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Do you understand that? I I didn't until yesterday. (laughs) I was on a walk or on a hike headed up to the top of Midland Hill. I had my little Romans 8 paper, you know, working on memorizing Romans 8. And I got to this point of memorizing Romans 8. And you know what it sounded like? Gobbledygook. Like, what, what exactly are you talking about? And then, and this is the glory of memorization. As I said it over and over again, out loud, walking on the trail, I realized, oh, I get it. Hope that is seen is not hope. Why? Because hope has a future orientation. So all of these things that are true of me and have been given to me by God are glorious and amazing, but it's not done. In other words, there's more. there's more for me as amazing as all of this is there's more hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees no I'm I'm wanting something else now if we hope for what we do not see we eagerly wait for it with patience so hope looks forward and anticipates something that has yet to come. And then Paul says, like eagerly waits for it with patience, which when I was on the trail, I was thinking, that's so weird, Paul. Like, can you imagine like trying to live as like eagerly? I'm like, oh, but with patience. Okay. Okay. I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit down. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> eagerly, but with patience. So what does that look like? It looks like excitement about what is yet to come, but to do so in a way, scholars call it over-realized eschatology. See, what, what we're not meant to do is grab all of these things that are in the future and try and pull them inordinately into the present, expecting that the present is gonna look like the future. It, it will one day, but not in this present time. Not until Jesus comes back. And so I eagerly anticipate, but I, right, I don't grumble. Why aren't things better? Why is there still suffering? Why is my life not going the way it's supposed to go? Why was there no power in the first service? No, I, the response, do you see, 
How does grumbling get turned into groaning? New creation. A hope for what is yet to come. I groan and long and eagerly anticipate that, but I do it with a a settled sense of peace and security in the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God that that day is coming. It's coming. So Paul has come full circle and explained himself. Our sufferings in this present time being called inconsequential and insignificant no longer feels like a slap in the face because he's built out the weight of the glory that is going to be revealed and he's instructed us how to add to the weight of the glory that is going to be revealed in the future so that our inescapable suffering in the present time will be incomparable to that future glory. It won't be worth comparing. And our hope is not in what is seen but in what we do not yet see. To which you should say, how can I hope in the invisible? But Paul, dude, come on. <laughs> My brain doesn't work that way. Right, isn't, this, isn't this what we do as humans? Isn't this why when we don't understand the story that we are living in and we think it's just about the present, that we start grabbing on all this stuff that we can see to somehow supply the hope to us that we desperately want? And Paul means to free us from that. So how, how do you do it? How do you make glory heavy so that suffering is light if you can't see it? Well, while the pictures aren't complete, the scripture does give us what I want to call glimpses. Okay, glimpses. And I think that we're meant to take them and to fuel our imaginations, and therefore our hope. So we are meant to turn, this is why, you guys, you gotta read the whole Bible. You gotta read the whole Bible so that you, so that you come across passages like Isaiah 65 that tell you all the way back in Isaiah about a new heavens and a new earth and what that may look like and, and how we're gonna live and where we're gonna live and what we may be eating while we're there and what the wildlife's gonna be doing like lions chewing on straw. We're meant to turn to Genesis 1 and 2 to see life in the original creation, to see the glory there and the image bearers there and the fellowship there for pointers of what a new creation may hold in part for us. We are meant to turn to the end of the story to Revelation 21 and 22 and to listen to the angel give a revealing, right? A revelation a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth and what they will hold in promise, hope, and glory. No tears, no grief, no crying, no more labor pains, no more groaning. Jesus saying, behold, I am making all things new. No moon or sun because the glory of God illuminates it. The the lamb is its lamp, the river of the water of life, the throne of God, the tree of life, the new Jerusalem. Glimpses, glimpses. And yet, it is remarkable. Listen, this is why I think the Bible gives us little glimpses because it's remarkable the power that little glimpses can have to fuel our hope. J.R.R. Tolkien demonstrates this remarkably well in The Return of the King. There's a scene where Frodo and Sam are in the land of Mordor, this land of darkness, evil, suffering, and shadow. That's Mordor, right? A shadow spreading across the entire entirety of Middle Earth. And they're making their way to Mount Doom in the hopes of destroying the One Ring. And as they lay down in the hopes of sleep one evening, well, here's the story. Sam struggled with his own weariness And he took Frodo's hand, and and there he sat silent till deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place. The land seemed full of noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Efelduath in the west, the night sky was still dim, and there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, that, that's just a peak, high up in the mountains, Sam saw above the cloud a white star twinkle for just a little while. And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. 
For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. For then he was thinking of himself. But now for a moment, worship team, would you come up? Now for a moment, his own fate and even his masters ceased to trouble him. All because of the twinkle of a little star above the dark clouds. And he crawled back into the brambles. And he laid himself by Frodo's side. Listen to this now. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. Man, doesn't that sound good? Why? Because just a twinkle and hope returned to him. The revelation that the shadow is only a small and passing thing And if Paul were there, he would have said, and it's not worth the glory that is going to be revealed to you, Sam. Family, our fate, listen, if you believe in Jesus, your fate is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's sealed. It's guaranteed and sure by the will of the Father and the work of the Son. And one day, this is the truth, One day, we are going to make it to a new world that has yet to be born. That is true and certain, just as much as that chair that you're sitting in that you're trusting to hold you up. It is coming. And this church family is called to share in that present pain of humanity and not run from it and to declare that hope. We are not to be apart from the pain of this world, but rather share the bigger story that humanity is living in. This is our calling, friends. How will people who don't know Jesus and are hopeless and despairing in this hopeless world have hope if we don't believe in it for them? Our calling is to build the kingdom here in the time between the ages. It's to have hearts set ablaze with hope so that we might embody hope for those who would otherwise be hopeless and to eagerly wait for it with patience. Because, listen, I don't know if you all know this, but Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming and new creation is coming with him. Amen. Amen.